Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trout of Pretty Good Bible Studies. Today, I'm covering John chapter 12, verses 1 through 11. We're going to jump a little bit out of time order. Jesus, at some period of time there between the Feast of Dedication, and the, which is in December, and the last Passover, which is in March, April, somewhere in that three-month period, he resurrected Lazarus. And then, and now, in John, John chapter 12, verses 1 through 11, we're going to talk about a feast that was held at Bethany in which Lazarus participated, the resurrected Lazarus participated, and it's all the way up two days before Jesus was crucified, at least if my accounting of the chronology is right, and it's very, very difficult to get all that straight, but I'm assuming that that's when this happened. There was a reason why John jumped out of time order, because he's going to drop back before this uh, Passion Week and take up some more stuff. Uh, in John chapter 12, verses 12 and following, we'll namely the triumphal entry. He's gonna, we're going to drop back to Palm Sunday in the next audio as we take up verses 12 through 19. But now we're past Palm Sunday. We're all the way up to the Tuesday night before Jesus died. So this is out of time order. I'll explain why in just a minute. There are some parallel passages of this anointing of Jesus by Mary of Bethany. There's Mark 14, 3-9, and Matthew 26, 6-13, approximately around there. I'm not going to go back and, and splice in my audio on that. I'm going to do a, a fresh one on this one, because I think I've, after having done a little bit more study, have, have, have gotten clear in my mind what's happening when. So we start with verse 1, John chapter 12. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus was. The one Jesus has raised from the dead. All right, here's the first problem. Six days before the Passover, all of a sudden in John chapter 11, we were some month, two months, you know, raising of Lazarus. We were good days, good ways before that last Passover when Jesus was crucified. And the other problem is, is that there are three accounts, as I mentioned, of this, of a anointing of Jesus's, uh, anointing of Jesus with oil. All three of them say they took place in Bethany. Two of them say they take place in the house of Simon the leper. And one of them, and two of them say it was two days before the Passover. And here in John 12, 1, it says six days before the Passover. So we've got a world of harmonization to do. And, that, and that's not to mention the fact there was another anointing by a so-called sinful woman in the house of another Simon, not Simon the, not Simon the leper, but Simon the Pharisee. That was in Luke 7. Well, let's start out by getting rid of that one. Luke chapter 7, it was a totally different anointing. It was by a sinful woman. Mary of Bethany was not sinful. It was before the feeding of the 5,000, which was a long time before this, before uh, Passion Week. So the timing is wrong. The place is wrong. It's in Galilee. So just because it was a Simon that where the house where the anointing took place means nothing. Simon was a common name. So we'll get rid of that one. So that still leaves three accounts. John chapter 12, 1 through 11, Mark 14 through through 9, and Matthew 26, 6 through 13 that we have to reconcile. Now, the easiest way, we, you know, a lot of people who discuss this problem, they go through and they make these tables and say, here are the events that are in common, and here are the events that are different. And that doesn't really prove anything because you can have two people describing the exact same event and they'll pick on, they'll, they will focus on different details. And you can say, see, the details are different, but you know it's the same event. That's not going to prove anything. So, let's just take the most the diff, most difficult problem. Six days before the Passover, it says in John 12:1 that Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus was, the one Jesus was raised from the dead. But in Matthew 26, verse 2, 
Jesus tells his disciples, you know that the Passover takes place after two days. And then the passage goes on to describe the anointing of his head by by a woman. And then we also read in Mark chapter 14, verse 1, Now the Passover and unleavened bread were two days away. And then you have a discussion of the meal at Mary of Bethany's where she anointed Jesus with oil. So you've got the major problem. The other details are minor and can be harmonized, but this is a major problem. You've got the time different. John says six days before the Passover, and Matthew and Mark say this meal took two days, took place two days before the Passover. Well, here is how you can reconcile that. There are two possible ways. One way, and I've seen this attempt done by several articles on the Internet, is to say that there were two different meals. Well, but there's enough in common about what happened at the meals that it's hard for me to believe there's two different women, two different meals. I don't believe that one, although the articles, of course, weren't stupid. They they made a pretty good case. It seems to me the simplest way to reconcile it is is this. We look at John 12, verse 1, and we, and we see this. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came. Now, came as aorist. And came can be translated, Aries is just, it's as, the aspect is, it's a fixed point in time. It's not continuous, it's not progressive, it's not continuous, it's not uh, intermittent. It just means point in time. And as some people say, you know, it's after you look at a parade, and so the, you look at the very end of the parade, and that's what you're looking at. So you could translate that as Jesus had come to Bethany, six days before the Passover, Jesus had come to Bethany. And even if you don't translate it that, if you just say Jesus came to Bethany, just even in English, you can look at it and say, well, it nowhere says that the meal took place six days before the Passover. It says Jesus came to Bethany six days before the Passover. And it's reasonable to assume from there that they planned the meal to have it on Tuesday night. Six days before the Passover, by the way, was Saturday. The Passover was Thursday, if you count back to Saturday. So he, he arrives on Saturday, the day before the triumphal entry, entry, the day before Palm Sunday. They get together. Jesus has got a lot of stuff to do. He's going in uh, every day into Jerusalem doing all his ministry. And they decide to have a meal on Tuesday night. And that way that reconciles Matthew and Mark, which says two days before the Passover, and John, which just says six days before the Passover, Jesus came, didn't say he ate six days before the Passover. So that's how I reconcile those passages. We're going to assume that all three passages refer to Mary, Martha, and Lazarus at a house in Bethany. The house is a place. It's called Simon the leper's house. That's mentioned in the parallels there, Matthew and Mark. And Mary was the one who anointed Jesus with oil. And, of course, she was not a sinner. She was not a prostitute, as some people like to say. They tried to identify her with the previous anointing in Luke chapter 7 up there in the in Galilee earlier. All right, so Jesus came to Bethany six days before the Passover. That would be Saturday. What does Bethany mean? John Gill says it might mean the house of obedience. It might mean the house of affliction. Or it might be the house of dates because there were a lot of dates around there. Also a lot of wheat, by the way. A lot of olives, very fruitful place. Jesus, of course, has spent, spent the whole Passion Week, the week before he died, at Bethany in, in this house as they took care of him. Now, I cannot remember if I mentioned why John jumped out of time order. He, was, he did the resurrection of Lazarus in chapter 11, which was a couple months, a month or two maybe before this, and all of a sudden he dr- jumps to two days before the Passover. And then the next chapter, he's going to drop back to the triumphal entry, which was 
the Sunday before the, the, the Tuesday of this banquet, three, what is that, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, three days earlier. Why did he do that? Well, I think the reason is in John 11, he was talking about Lazarus. He was talking about Lazarus being dead and being resurrected again. And so when we get to this meal, we have Mary talking about Jesus being buried. She's anointing him with oil for burial. And, of course, the implication is they're talking about resurrection, too. And so the theme the theme fits perfectly. And so that's why John jumped out of time order. And, by the way, I haven't mentioned this. Bethany was two miles east of Jerusalem. It says that in the last chapter, John 11, verse 18. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles away. That's how he could walk in every day, every morning on, during Passion Week, because it was just two miles away on the east side of the Mount of Olives. Now, that's six days before the Passover. I said it was Saturday, very confidently, actually. The Expositor's Greek Testament says it is difficult to ascertain with exactness what day is intended, but they say it was probably Saturday, and that's what I think it is. We go down to verses 2 through 3 of John 12. So they gave a dinner for him there, and again, John doesn't mention it, but I'm assuming the parallels are the same meal, and it was at the house of Simon the leper who lived in Bethany. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha was serving them, and Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him, the resurrected Lazarus. Then Mary took a pound of fragrant oil, pure and expensive nard, anointed Jesus' feet, and wiped his feet with her hair. So the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. Now, nard is the name of a very expensive plant, and it's also the name of the oil it yielded, as my NIV study Bible says. Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown say the only use of this was to refresh and exhilarate a grateful compliment in the East amidst the closeness of a heated atmosphere. That's what they used nard for, was to, I guess, because it smelled good, and they would just rub it on people's faces and, and hands and such because it smelled good, and it refreshed people, and so that's what Mary was doing. It was a superfluous act. Jesus didn't need it to stay alive. It wasn't like it was food. It was just, I'm showing you honor. I'm showing you something special. Now, there was three reasons why Mary's act of devotion was so special, so remarkable. First of all, the nard was so expensive. All three of these reasons are from my NIV study Bible. First reason, the nard was so expensive, one alabaster's jar, jar's worth was a year's wages. I read somewhere, on, well, it actually says that. If you look down at verse 5 in the NIV, it says that the 300 denarii that Judas thought the nard could have been sold for, the NIV just says a year's wages instead of 300 denarii. Denarii is a day's wage, so, so that's 300 days' wages. About a year's worth of labor. That's a lot of money in that little alabaster jar. They, I read on the Internet that they used to keep the nard in the alabaster jars as a way of saving, saving their goods, kind of like we bury gold in the ground. Of course, gosh, it would be so easy to break one of those things and lose a year's worth of savings. But anyway... So that's the first reason she her devotion was so remarkable is, is the nard was so expensive. The second reason is that Mary poured the nard on the feet of Jesus. Usually when you dealt with somebody's feet, you were a slave. But she went down there and she worked on Jesus' feet. Total humility she had. Even though she was his friend, if, if you remember. She was, she was Jesus' friend, but she, she said, No, you're my Lord. I'm your servant. I should point out here that the parallel passages in Matthew 26 and Mark 14 say that the woman who we take to be Mary, doesn't mention her by name, but we're assuming it's Mary, poured the oil on Jesus' head. 
that is one of those details that you need to reconcile. I believe that she poured it on his head and his feet. The third thing that Mary did is she unbound her hair. And a respectable woman did not unbind her hair in public, as the NIV study Bible says. But she unbound her hair and washed Jesus' feet with her hair. She was being very, very humble. Now, of course, she was at her house. Well, she was not at her house, but she was at the house of a neighbor's. And she was with friends. But nonetheless, what she did was quite remarkable, I think. Now, I have a speculation here, which I have, of course, never read anywhere. This is just an idea that popped in my head. I wonder, did Mary ever have romantic affection for the Lord? I mean, you never think about this. She was single, and why not? I mean, you know, she obviously loved him and thought he was great. We often think of Jesus as so, as so holy that no woman would ever, would ever think that way. And maybe Mary thought he was just so holy the thought never crossed her mind. But I wonder. She obviously loved him a lot. Notice that, once again, we have in this verse, Martha serving. Verse 2, so they gave a dinner for him there. Martha was serving them. So Martha is noted for being a servant. And unfortunately, she was called a servant in that passage where Jesus rebuked her for serving too much and not, and not being like Mary to sit at Jesus' feet and learn from the Master's voice. This is in Luke chapter 10. Verse 40, Martha was distracted by her many tasks, and she came up and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to serve alone? So tell her to give me a hand. The Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has made the right choice, and it will not be taken away from her. So Martha got rebuked for working too hard, but she had a servant's heart. She was working, and she was serving at this meal also. Notice that she was doing the survey, but the meal was at Simon the lepers, we think, according to assuming the two parallel versions refer to this same meal. And as I said earlier, that's debatable, but I think it's true. Lazarus was at this meal. He doesn't seem to show any where for having spent four days dead in a tomb. Jesus did a good job of resurrecting him or resuscitating him, if you will, from death. We now go to John 12, verses 4 and 5. Then one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was about to betray him, said, Why wasn't this fragrant oil sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Remember, this is Tuesday night of Passion Week. He betrayed Jesus on Thursday night. He's two more days in his discipleship days and his life were going to be over. But he died to the very last. He's worried about money. Why wasn't this fragrant oil, this nard, sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? As I said earlier, the NIV says that's a year's wages. A lot of money. And he was thinking, ooh, we could have gotten a lot of money. He was in charge of giving money to the poor because he was in charge of the money bag. But he wasn't concerned about the poor. He was a greedy and covetous man. We read in Mark 14:11, And when they heard this, that's the Jewish leaders, they were glad and promised to give him Judas silver. Why? To betray Jesus. So he started looking for a good opportunity to betray him. So he was interested in money from the get-go. And this little detail confirms that unfortunate fact. We go to verses 6 and 7 in John 12. He didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He was in charge of the money bag and would steal part of what was put in it. Jesus answered, leave her alone. She has kept it for the day of my burial. Now, this is the first question I want to ask. Why would Jesus put a thief in charge of the money bag? Well, this is all speculation. It could be that it was not revealed to him yet that Judas was going to betray him. You know, the Father didn't reveal everything to Jesus at once. Jesus operated as a human being until God, the Father, wanted to reveal something to him in his humanity. 
So that might be why he just didn't know. And apparently the the apostles were shocked that he would even that he would be the one to betray Jesus. Remember, remember they were saying he said, they couldn't at the Last Supper they couldn't believe that Judas had done anything wrong. They act like they're totally blindsided by Judas's character. There's another possibility they might not have realized he was a thief until he was put in charge of the money bag, and then somebody caught him stealing, and then people started thinking, hey, maybe you're a thief. But I don't think so, because they would have probably booted him from the apostolic band as soon as they caught him on that. So I don't know when he was found out being a thief. Obviously, John knew about it here. So I don't know when they found out he was a thief. He's only got two more days. Maybe maybe they had caught him stealing, and they knew he was less than honest, but they didn't say anything about it. They didn't want to deal with it yet. I don't know. At any rate, Jesus rebukes Judas, and he says, Leave her alone. She has kept it for the day of my burial. In other words, she has spent that money to anoint Jesus for, for burials. I think everybody knew they were, the Jews were getting ready to kill Jesus, and it must have been very, very sad, very, very difficult. They knew he was going to die. And so Jesus is saying, Man, she's preparing me for my burial. That's more important than giving money to the poor. So just lay off for Judas. You know, there's a lot of people who get self-righteous about standing up for the poor. I just love this. Judas concerned about the poor. How many politicians do you know, socialists especially, who are living in million-dollar mansions? I, I think of a, a, a certain senator named Bernie Sanders living in three humongous houses, houses bigger than you or I'll ever live in, and he's talking about the poor. He's concerned about the poor. Oh, I'm not supposed to talk about politics. Excuse me. Well, he's not alone. There are a lot of... I call them limousine liberals. They love to talk about the poor, and all they give a ding-dong damnation about is money. Well, that's what Judas was. All he cared about was money, and Jesus called him on it. We go now to John chapter 12, verse 8. Jesus continues speaking to Judas and to his and to Jesus' disciples. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. Now, this verse has been quoted in my past. I'm from in, I'm from the South. I grew up amongst conservative, politically conservative people, as well as religiously conservative people. And I heard this verse quoted all the time. And there was something about it that bothered me, because the way it was quoted was it was quoted against government programs to help the poor. Now there's lots of good political reasons why these government programs to help the poor are bad. They they create welfare dependency. They they give money to people who drink it up and, and, and who are not responsible in the use of the money. They tax us half to death to do this kind of charity. They, they, they make the people that receive the charity uh, feel like they don't ever have to get a job, and therefore their skills diminish, and they end up being wards of the state, and on and on. There's plenty of reasons why you can complain about government welfare programs. But this verse ain't the verse to use to do that. I believe the verse was misused by conservative politicians. I remember Strom Thurmond used that verse one time. South Carolina sainted senior citizen now gone on to be with the Lord. I don't believe he was right in doing that. Because what Jesus meant is you always have the poor with you and so you will always have the opportunity to give money to the poor. So, hey, she took the opportunity to give money to me to spend her money on me. That's okay. She'll have plenty of opportunity to give money to the poor after I'm dead and gone. And in fact, if you read Deuteronomy 15:11, you will read this. For there will never cease to be poor people in the land. That is why I am commanding you. You must willingly open your hand to your afflicted and poor brother in your land. So there, 
Moses in the law says, hey, you're always going to have poor people with me, with you. Just like Jesus said, you'll always have the poor with you. And Moses goes on to say, and so therefore, since you'll always have the poor, open your hand and give them money. The ever-presence of the poor was an occasion to do more charity, not less. This idea of that there's no need to help the poor because they'll always be poor and, 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 and it's hopeless to help them because they'll never get out of their poverty. That is a social Darwinist idea. That's not a Christian idea. We're supposed to help the poor. The only two times that money was given in the New Testament was to help itinerant ministers of the gospel and to help the poor, the widows and the orphans. First of the household of faith and then outside the household of the faith. Now there's another way that political liberals can misuse this verse. They could say, oh, you always have the poor with you, so we've got to give money to the poor, we've got to help the poor, we've got to help the poor, and, oh, preach the gospel. Oh, let's don't worry about such mundane things like that. That's your typical liberal attitude. I like Franklin Graham's Samaritan Purse, Purse's attitude. They help poor people, help disaster people afflicted with disaster, and they preach the gospel at the same time. They don't, there's no contradiction, nor should there be. Now let's look at another issue in this verse. When Jesus said, for you always have the poor with you, was the you there referring to his disciples? Meaning, for you disciples will always have the poor with you, and you'll have opportunity to give money to them later. Or does he mean... For you, human beings, for till the end of time, will always have the poor with you. Therefore, it's impossible, impossible to wipe poverty out. Now, that's an interesting question. I think that he meant, for you disciples will always have the poor with you. And so you can do good to them, but I'm going to be gone. You won't be able to do good to me, so you need to do good to me now, just like Mary did. I think that's what he meant. But if he didn't mean that, if he meant, for you human beings will always have the poor with you, what does that say about our ability to eliminate poverty on earth. Now, I hate poverty. I think poverty is a terrible thing. And I remember reading a lot of libertarian books who talk about free market economics delivering people from poverty all over the world. And as a matter of fact, ever since the Industrial Revolution, the world's population has ballooned, but the poverty rate has shrunk. Malthus was exactly wrong. The increasing population level did not thrust everybody into starvation, but because of technology the Green Revolution and, and agriculture and all that, we are now able to support more and more people and the poverty level is shrinking. And I think that's great. However, these libertarians who like to point that out, they are not big on human sin. I'm, I've read enough libertarians to know it's like sin. Uh, what's that? You know, we're free. We're, you know, like Anne Rand, you know, she's looking up in the sky. The eye, the almighty eye is the, is the only thing that matters on earth. And they don't talk about human sin too much, especially their own. But there will always be human sin on this earth until Jesus comes back, which means there will be domestic abuse, abuse and neglect. There will be adultery. There will be alcoholism. There will be child abandonment, which means there's always going to be poverty. So I think we can do a lot to, to uh, ameliorate poverty, but I don't think we're ever going to get rid of it completely. So I think that what Jesus was meaning, for you will always have the poor with you, you disciples. He was not talking, making a blanket statement about the world until the end of time will always have the poor with them. And so that would be another reason why Strom Thurmond and his conservative buddies were wrong, using that verse, saying we'll always have the poor with us. We go to verse nine, verses 9, 10, and 11 in John 12, and we'll finish up this audio. Then a large crowd of the Jews learned he was there. Now we're, we're bouncing back now. We're finished with the, the feast, uh, at the, the supper, I should say, at the home of Simon the leper when Mary of Bethany anointed Jesus' feet with her hair and with the nard, we're finished with that. And we're popped back to six days 
before the Passover, which is when Jesus arrived, which is mentioned in John 12, verse 1. At that time, then a large crowd of the Jews learned he was there. All right, so Jesus has arrived in Bethany. He's come from somewhere in Perea. A large crowd of the Jews learned he was there. I, how they did, I don't know. Jesus was now showing himself openly, so there was no secret about it. Lazarus was probably doing the same thing, as John Gill points out, before maybe Lazarus was keeping himself hidden for safety's sake. But at any rate, now he's openly there, and the Jews knew that Jesus was back, and there's a large crowd. They came not only because of Jesus, but also to see Lazarus, the one he had raised from the dead. So now these people are probably pro-Jesus and pro-Lazarus and hot dog the Messiahs here. Verse 18, therefore the chief priest decided to kill Lazarus. Well, there's your answer. Just kill him. Kill him also. They decided to kill Lazarus also. They'd already decided to kill Jesus and had tried to catch him several times. But now they decided to kill Lazarus also because he was the reason many of the Jews were deserting them and believing in Jesus. These people were murderers. There's no other word to describe them. Who were these Jews that wanted to do this? This has to be the Jewish leaders. They had the ability to kill Jesus. Adam Clark says that John is referring to the Jews in general that lived down in Jerusalem because Galileans often called, because he was a Galilean, John was from Galilee. Galileans often called the inhabitants of Jerusalem Jews, I guess, because inhabitants of Judea Judea sounds like Jews. Well, I think he meant the Jewish leaders, actually. They're going after him. Now, they decided to kill Lazarus. Originally, they had only decided to kill one man. It was only one man they wanted to kill for the nation. That was in the last chapter, John 11, verse 50, near the end. This is Caiaphas talking to the chief priest. You're not considering that it is to your advantage, Jewish leaders. He's, I, I'm, I'm saying that that's who he's talking to. It is to your advantage that one man should die for the people rather than the whole nation perish. And, of course, he was referring to Jesus. Jesus, ironically, did die before the for the nation, and thus made Caiaphas a sort of a prophet. But that's not what Caiaphas was talking about. He was talking about killing him for the Jewish nation and the, and the Jewish nation as run by the chief priest, the rulers, and the Pharisees. So anyway, now it's two people they want to kill. Their sin is growing as then obviously study Bible points out. Now, if they had killed Lazarus, that would have served their purpose in this way. People would not believe that Lazarus had been raised from the dead, and thus Jesus' testimony would not be as credible anymore. Apparently, it never occurred to the Jews that Jesus could have raised him again. Say, hey, you tried to kill him. I just raised him again for the second time. John Gill says that this shows the fact that they want to kill him. It shows the Jewish leaders of the Sanhedrin were murdering bastards. Oops, I don't think John Gill said that. I must have been paraphrasing him, but that's exactly what they were. I I love to point that out because I went to a wannabe Jewish seminar one time with these Gentile Christians who who talk about the the gospel is not Jewish enough, and I sat and listened to the secretary of a, of a Joseph Good. I still remember the guy's name. He wasn't there, but he was on Trinity Broadcasting Network talking about Jewish. We need to be Jewish this and Jewish that. And his secretary was sitting there talking to me, and she said uh, the, how wonderful the Pharisees were. And I was so shocked. Of course, I should have really lit up on that. I should have said, "You have got to be kidding me." But I was so polite. I just sat there in stunned, shocked silence and didn't say anything. So ever since then, I've been trying to compensate by pointing out to you that whenever you see Pharisees in the New Testament, they were murdering bastards. They were horrible. There wasn't nothing good about those guys. Ladies and gentlemen, we are now finished with John chapter 12, verses 1 through 11. We have Jesus, Jesus anointed for his burial by Mary of Bethany. Next audio will start in verse 12. Go through 12. 
verses 12 through 19 and take up Jesus' triumphant entry. I hope you listen to that one. And I hope you enjoyed this one. 